Hey, when you were growing up, or maybe now, did you have a hero? I had some heroes when I was growing up. I, my first hero that I can remember outside of Spider-Man was a guy named Pelly Lindbergh. And Pelly Lindbergh was a goalie for the Flyers, and he wore the blank white mask. And I was like infatuated with hockey at the time, and I was just a little kid, and I thought Pelly Lindbergh was the greatest, and he was going to be the goalie that would finally lead the Flyers back to the Stanley Cup. And then I remember on the news getting word that Pelly Lindbergh had been killed in an automobile accident and that he was actually driving drunk and led to his death. And I remember as a kid being shattered and thinking that my hero could be someone who would make a choice like that. And so I went on to aspire to better heroes. Uh, I, I became a fan of a guy named Jose Canseco. We've been through this story before. Just look him up on Wikipedia, and you're like, stick with Pelly Lindbergh, right? Uh, Jose Canseco was a known cheater, a liar, a womanizer, everything wrong with the world in one person. And he even let a, a fly ball bounce off his head and go over the fence for a home run. So it was a terrible hero to have. And so then, like, later on in life, like, and being serious about my faith, I, I had heroes like Martin Luther, and he's still a hero of mine, but you dig into Martin Luther's life, and everything's not so pretty in Martin Luther's life either. In fact, he was a pretty rampant anti-Semite. Anti you know, he was a bad guy in that way. And The truth of the matter is that as human beings, we often look to or aspire to be ourselves heroic. And the truth is, as broken and sinful people, we are not hero material. That there is one hero, and the Bible is a story that is meant to, to convince us of this. And that hero is Yahweh, God himself. And really, as we've been studying through 2 Samuel, we've seen this unfold. Because if there was to be a hero in the Old Testament, it was a guy like David, Right? Saul was a villain kind of king, but when David comes, things are going to be different. And we've seen it unfold. They're not that much different, are they? And David's a deeply broken man. And so as we come sort of to the, to the or, or at least close to the end of 2 Samuel, we are dealing with this reality of David as a fallen hero, as someone we hoped he wouldn't be, and the need to refocus our hearts and minds elsewhere. And the storyteller wants our hearts and minds to go to God himself, not to some other king. In fact, if you remember all the way back into the beginning of 1 Samuel, now you're going to either have to go on your own knowledge or like four or five years ago when we taught through 1 Samuel. You remember that um, when the Israelites asked for a king, God says pretty specifically, this is a rejection of me. Remember that? That... that that when they ask for a king, when Samuel is the prophet, Samuel says, I guess they don't want me anymore. And God says, not you they don't want. It's me they don't want. And so this idea that the, the yearning for human heroes and human leaders and human kings is a rejection of God himself. Now all the way at the end of this Samuel narrative, which are meant to be read as one giant book, we again are turning back to God and saying, you were right. This human king reality wasn't all it was cooked up to be. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 21, and I'm going to read this for us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to follow along, or feel free to just listen. 
2 Samuel 21, verse 1, During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is on account of Saul and the blood-stained house, and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. We'll pause there for just a second. Uh, let me say this at the outset. So I, I think that the, this chapter, it kind of is a bookend to, to Second Samuel or to the whole Samuel narrative, is meant to show us that, that God is really the true king. And we see in this chapter God doing three things that a king ought to have been doing. And the first is that God shows mercy to his people. And the second is that God remembers the covenants that he makes with his people. And the third is that God is the one who defeats the enemies or who defeats the giants, as it were, uh, in the storyline here. So the first thing that we're seeing here then is God showing mercy. And you might be saying to me, well, how on earth in the verses you just read is mercy in there? I heard famine for three years, and that doesn't sound like mercy. Well, let me kind of explain it to you. I think God's actually showing mercy in two ways through the institution of a famine. The first way that he is showing mercy is he's attempting to get the attention of his people. He's understood they've done something very wrong here. And instead of just casting judgment on them, he's attempting to get their attention so that they will be people of repentance that will rectify the situation. Does it make sense? So God could have judged them for this disobedience. In his mercy, he did not judge them and instead brought famine on them. And if you know a little bit of the Old Testament history, you know that in God's covenant with his people, he basically says, if you're living my way, the land is going to be prosperous. And if you're not living my way, then the land is going to be known by famine. And so the institution of famine in the land should send flaring signals up that something is wrong. Now we see God's extra mercy because did you notice how long the famine lasted? One, two, three years. It took the Israelites to say, oh, maybe something's the matter here. David says, maybe I should seek God's face. Well, you should have done that like three years ago, right? And so we even see God's mercy in his patience and persistence to get the attention of his people. And Paul would write this to the Romans later. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And sometimes that kindness isn't always pleasant but it's from a heart that is full of mercy. But God's not only merciful to the Israelites, he's being led in many ways by mercy to the Gibeonites. These are people, and we'll talk about it here in a second, who have been greatly wronged by the Israelites and dealt with harshly by Saul specifically, but as a proxy for all of Israel. And so we understand that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and in all of life, that God's voice is not just for his people, but for all of the world. And that God actually is a voice for those who are not in power, so to speak. For those who are not the authority in the matter. That God has a voice for those who are in need. For those who are being pushed to the margins that the God of the universe and the God of Israel and therefore the God of the church has a heart for marginalized people, has a heart for poor people, 
for people who've been dispossessed, for people who have been the victim of power plays. And though we don't have time to get into that, I would suggest to you that has all kinds of implications on how the church ought to be living and who the church ought to be advocating for. God's intention was never for the church to rise to a position of power. It was always to be advocates and ambassadors for his kingdom to all people. In many ways, what's gotten the church off the rails in our Western world, especially in the United States, is the church rose to power and fell in love with power. And now, as power is fading from it, has no idea how to be gospel ambassadors where we are. So God is acting in mercy. He's acting in mercy because he wants to see the covenant fulfilled. So let's keep reading verse Two, the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Here's a parenthesis that's important. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them, right? Strong language. So Joshua chapter 9 gives us the background for this. The Gibeonites see the Israelites advancing and taking full possession of the land. The Gibeonites are part of that land, but they, uh, they work to deceive Joshua in a slight way, we could say, try to be nice here, in that they come and present themselves as people coming from a great distance, seeking to make a treaty with Israel, that they'd be partners and not enemies. And uh, in so doing, they trick Joshua into making a covenant with them, and Joshua finds out very quickly that they actually live right in the middle of the land, and now by this covenant, he is bound not to remove them or displace them from the land. In fact, in Joshua chapter 9, and and really in all Old Testament covenants, this is how a covenant works. You would take an animal, a fattened calf usually, and you would cut it in half. It was a bloody mess, and you would put one half over here and one half over here, and then the two people making the covenant would walk together through the middle of the covenant, and it was symbolic not only to say we are making this agreement to each other, but it was also symbolic to say if we break this agreement, we'll be like this animal we're passing through. You see it? And so it's why, if you've ever heard this language before, that it's called cutting a covenant. And so literally the Hebrew in Joshua 9 is that Joshua cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. And so that's the bloody, ugly language of what's going on. Basically to say, hey, over my dead body, as it were, will I break this covenant? And so in Joshua chapter 9, Joshua soon finds out that he's been deceived by the Gibeonites. They've played a trick on him. But he says, we can't do anything to them. Why? Because of the justice of God. Now you might say, well, justice of God, they deceived him. What's going on? Well, you go deeper into Joshua chapter 9, not only did they cut a covenant, but Joshua in, in proclaiming the covenant to the Gibeonites says, swore an oath by Yahweh. Okay? He swore an oath by Yahweh and basically said, if I don't keep this, then Yahweh is obligated to make me like this sacrifice right here. God becomes, in essence, the guarantor, or the, the guarantor, the guarantor, what's the word? The guarantor of this deal. When Rachel and I bought our first house, 
uh, way before we had any money to buy a house, my dad signed on the loan with us. And that meant a couple of things to me. One, I was super gracious for him. We were probably too young to buy a house. Number two, I was going to make sure that if every other bill didn't get paid, the mortgage was getting paid, right? Because dad signed on it with me. And if it didn't, it came to him. And in essence, this is what Joshua is saying. Yahweh's signing on this deal with me. He's going to make sure it happens. This is serious business. And so Joshua keeps the covenant. Uh, He gives them strange jobs to perform in the kingdom. You can read Joshua chapter 9 later. But they stay kind of as a, a cloister in the middle of the kingdom of God. But apparently, when Saul rises to power, he has some kind of nationalistic zeal. He wants to prove himself to Israel. And he goes in and attempts to exterminate the Gibeonites. Making no attempt at all to keep this covenant, this binding covenant with these people. So David, when hearing that this is what's going on in the heart of God, he asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. In other words, we're not in charge But David, I think you know what this covenant means. It's kind of what they're saying here, if you read between the lines. So David said, well, what do you want me to do for you then? In other words, knowing he's got to be the one that delivers the verdict. And they answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. King spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord. Covenants are now blazing in front of David's mind. And he remembers he made one with Mephibosheth. He better not mess this up, right? But the king took Armoni and another guy named Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, killed them, exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. And were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. And when David was told what Rizpah had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. Parentheses, remember that Jabesh Gilead people had taken them down from the, the Philistines who had, had hung them out for everyone to see. And David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They were buried together in Saul's father's tomb. And after that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. Now listen. This story does not 
deal well with our modern-day sensibilities. It just doesn't, right? We can't make sense of this. We don't understand it. Uh, there's not a whole lot of people online. If you want to go look, sermon, 2 Samuel 21, awfully hard to find. I tried, right? This is, these are the ones you skip. You don't talk about this stuff. We pretend it never happened. It doesn't make sense. But we've got to have a, a, a moment to really come to grips with this idea of the justice of God, right? The justice of God. And I don't mean that in a, in a difficult way. I mean that in the sense that God in his holiness is obligated to see justice done in this world and for his glory. So as the guarantor of this covenant, he's calling David as representative of Israel to step into this and to make this right. And in many ways, Saul, as a representative of all of Israel, could have led to the doom of all of Israel, or could have led to the doom of all of his family, and yet seven are chosen, because in biblical language, the number seven is a number of wholeness or completeness, as it were. And these men are taken out, and the original language is even harsher than what we read. They're, put on, they're killed and they're put on stakes. They're impaled on stakes, stuck into the ground on a hill, for everyone to see so that all of Israel could know what had happened. Justice is done. So what do we do in terms of trying to figure this out? Well, the first thing I think we need to do, and this is not a cop-out, this is actually an important thing to wrestle with, is that we do not live in the days of David. In the days of David, what's going on here was, would be somewhat, I don't say common, but somewhat of a known commodity that when you make covenants, these are the things that happen. And it was a much more barbaric reality in life and in battle. And it was, uh, you know, a reality. I think these men, in some sense, would have understood as descendants of Saul that this was required of them because of what had happened. And it's also important for us to not only see it from the side of the seven sons or grandsons, but also from the side of the Gibeonites, who had lost countless numbers of people. And then to think of it in our terms a little bit too. The truth is that when we see heinous acts done, and when we see people oppressing other people. We want to see justice done. Our heart longs for something to make this right, for someone to pay a price for it. Now, would we hunt down their grandkids and impale them on sticks? That's not what society today would do with something like this. Nor would we cut a covenant like Joshua and the Gibeonites did. But we still would want to see justice done in some way for this. So I'm asking you, as someone who doesn't fully have the answers to make sense of all this, to simply see that God is attempting to keep a covenant and to defend not only his people, but also all of the world in their connection to him. And then also for us, I think, to really grapple with the idea that breaking covenants 
and being broken and sinful people introduces all kinds of pain and anguish into our world and into our lives. And Rizpah, in this story, is the personification of this pain. A mom guarding the corpses of her sons so the birds can't pick at their flesh. This is not the world that God created. This is not how it's supposed to be. It's the introduction of broken humanity into leadership, into into all kinds of other things that, 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 that brings these realities to bear. And we're meant to look and see a God who is a God who keeps His covenant. And so doing doesn't bring all kinds of chaos into the world. And then we're running short on time, so let me just summarize the next passage or the next pericope section of Scripture here. It goes to this strange story, and and I should have said this earlier, but 2 Samuel chapter 21 is probably not chronologically right after chapter 20. It probably happened sometime earlier, sometime in the midst of of David's reign, perhaps before Absalom's uh, rebellion of some sort. We find David fighting with the Philistines, and he's fighting this, the, 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 the sons of Goliath, as it were, the Rapha, the, the giants, the big people. And he's, he's having this battle, and we see David becoming weak and tired in the midst of this battle. And he has to be rescued by his other men. And we see all of these other men slaying giants. Now, it's just a bizarre story that's just tagged on there. But if you know anything of the story of David, you know why the storyteller would want to take the story and put it as a bookend to the end of the story. Because how does the David story start? With David coming on the scene and being the only one who can slay the giant, right? He's our great hope. He's the only one who'll stand up to Goliath. And he defeats him. And after he defeats him, the Israelites march against the Philistines. And they have victory. And this is our hope. And then... Once we see the life of David play out in front of us and see he's just a broken person like us, we see the second fight against the giants where David is too weak to win. Do you see it? And so we have a new picture of our once high-held hero now as someone who's just as desperately in need of God's protection and provision as regular dudes like us. And so we are let into a little secret here that when giants are slayed, it is not a human victory. It is God himself who slays giants. Be they Goliath at the hands of a young guy who's willing to stand up for God and hits him in the head with a stone, Or be they these set of Rapha at the end where that same guy is too weak to even lift his sword. The storyline is not the human hero who can lead us into battle. It's the God who sustains the regular people in battle against giants. Do you see it? That God is the true king. He's the one who shows mercy to his people and to the world. He's the one who keeps his covenant And he's the one who slays the giants. Yahweh is our hope. Yahweh is what we need. 
and because Yahweh is our hope and what we need. Instead of continually anointing new sons of David, we celebrate in the season of Advent the reality of God Himself in the person of Jesus entering into the mess of earth as the ultimate son of David. Why? Because He's a God who's known by mercy. He was not okay to simply sit in heaven and look down on on an earth and a humanity who continually messes things up, who continually brings and institutes pain and brokenness and chaos through our selfishness and rebellion and sin. He was not okay to cast judgment down on there, but He did, as we prayed earlier, bring heaven's rule to earth so that the kingdom of God might advance in its true king, Jesus. And in Jesus' presence, we are reminded that God is not only merciful, but that God is faithful to His covenants. Because just like David, we are people who are more known by our rebellion than our obedience. Paul says it this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 5 that we were in Adam. In other words, that Adam's rebellion in the garden is a perfect summary of our life. That given opportunity, we are always going to choose to be God for ourselves rather than to acknowledge that Yahweh is our only hope. We are going to go for hero status, go for king status, go for self-authority and governance, rather than depend upon the God of the universe. But God had already put something into place to deal with this reality. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls a man named Abram, and Abraham, who God changes his name to Abraham, is meant to be a new Adam, a, a, a new reality for the people of God. And he says to him, I am going to make you a great nation. Right? He doesn't say you're going to be a king. But in essence, through him, there's going to be a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. He says, I'm going to be your God, and I will dwell with you and you with me. And Abraham, it says in Genesis chapter 15, believed God, and it says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief and faith was his entrance into this new fullness of life that God was offering. And Abraham says to God, but how can I be sure? There are a lot of things in Abraham's life, if you remember, that are pointing against this reality. For one, he's extraordinarily old and his wife can't have kids. So how is this going to turn out anyway? And as he's asking these questions, how can I be sure, God does something fascinating. He does not stop and give him a legal debrief on why you should trust him. It says he caused him to fall into a deep sleep. And as he was sleeping, a sacrifice was made. And the sacrifice was set on either side, just like Joshua and the Gibeonites. And it says God walked through the sacrifice. And we might say, well, that's an interesting story. And I say, well, you, you don't understand. Just God 
walked through the sacrifice. Abraham did not walk through the sacrifice. And so what is God saying? Here's how you can be sure. Because this covenant only depends upon me. It does not depend upon you. And so when in mercy God comes to earth in the person of Jesus, we see that the climax of his story ends up with him impaled on a Roman stick, hanging on a hill called a cross, exposed for all of the world to see as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world that he himself did not commit. He says this sacrifice in the supper he has with his disciples before, the sacrifice, my blood in the sacrifice represents a new covenant for you. There's that word again. That God is cutting a new covenant. And now instead of a bull being sacrificed on either side, it is God Himself, it is Jesus Himself sacrificed on either side. And God, Yahweh Himself, walks through the sacrifice. He says, because of Jesus' sacrifice, dependent fully on me, as a substitute for you, you can enter in to the fullness of life. And our only requisite, prerequisite, as it were, I guess, is faith. Would you believe? And would you do it? And on the cross, though it seemed like a certain defeat, three days later, we celebrate on Easter an empty tomb, a resurrected Savior. Why? Because God is not just a God of mercy in coming or a God who's faithful to the covenant in being sacrificed for us, but a God who defeats the ultimate giants of sin and death in the resurrection. Do you see it? That even in stories like this, we are being prepared for the ultimate grace of God in the rescue of his people. So then, as ambassadors of this king, it is incumbent upon us through Jesus' union to us to be people who are known by mercy, who are faithful to the covenant, and who are living victorious lives. Let me leave you with this. This is what Paul writes to the Romans. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those to whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns. No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, 
As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because God is our King. Because He is known by His mercy, His hesed faithfulness to His covenant, and His ultimate defeat of the great giants of sin and death welcomes you into a fullness of life without condemnation, without charge against you. Why? Because He walked through it alone. It's not dependent upon you. And the promise of blessing as you live it out. Can I pray with you?